It's 1942 in Nazi Germany. 16-year-old Latter-day Saint Helmut Hubner is arrested for treason by the Gestapo. His courageous, historic, and tragic story is next in Chapter 27, God is at the Helm. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm James Perry. Joining us today is Ryan Saltzgiver, a historian in the Church History Department. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Ryan, you work on global church history and you've been involved in the global histories. Can you tell us more about them and why they were compiled? Absolutely. So the Global Histories Project is a project that's designed to tell brief histories of the church in most of the countries where the church is currently operating. And we do that through a series of short stories about Latter-day Saints from that place. We try to focus on local members and their perspective and how the church has become established in that place. We also add in things like a chronology so you can get kind of a sense of the whole history of the church in the place. And we suggest some readings that you could do on side of it. But so there are about 60 of them currently published, and hopefully soon that'll be around 110s. And I do have to say here that Ryan Saltzgiver has been a guest on the Latter-day Saint Women podcast, talking specifically about some of the women that are featured in these global histories. The global histories are such an amazing project, and we're really lucky to have you here today, Ryan. Thanks. Thank you. Now, Ryan, there's a lot of overlap between what you do in the Global Histories and the Saints Project. You're researching church history, you're looking at people from around the world, you're trying to represent the different things that are going on for the church and its members. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about how you find these stories and how do you decide who to use in telling the stories? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, by design, that overlap exists. We knew pretty early on as we were designing the Saints project and starting to choose stories that would be featured in Saints as a department, we knew that there were going to be so many great stories that we couldn't tell all of them in Saints. And so part of what we wanted to do was we wanted to have a place where we could tell stories that wouldn't be in Saints or maybe some that would be in Saints and tell them in a different way and have them be available to people on a country by country basis. And so that's where global histories came from. As far as the stories that we choose to tell and where we find them, most of these stories are coming from research in local records. Occasionally we'll have a a letter or a mission president or a missionary who mentions someone. So we start usually with those kinds of very basic sources, the sources that we're all kind of familiar with, where we would assume those things come from. And then we frequently are looking for the journals of a local member of the church, a first branch president or Relief Society president. We'll reach out and we'll interview them and have conversations with them where they tell us their stories. From those interviews or from the other sources that we're able to gather, we craft a narrative around something that's important. So in the global histories, we want to tell the whole history of the church in a place. And so there's there's always one story that's kind of about how did the church get there? Who were the first members? Who were the first missionaries? And how did they establish those early branches? And then we'll tell a story about a Latter-day Saint who's been a member for a little while, who's a, a better established member of the church. And how do you live a life as a Latter-day Saint in a place like Croatia 
or somewhere else in the world where there's not a lot of Latter-day Saints around you, where the culture might be different and where it's going to be unfamiliar to any saint who's not from that place. And so we try to tell stories about establishment or key moments, the creation of stakes, the building of temples, when people take trips to temples. And we call these stories of faith. So really, it's all built around expressions of everyday faith of Latter-day Saints in all places of the world as they are accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ and building Zion where they live. Well, thank you so much for that, Ryan. And I'm a huge fan of the global histories. And I think if any of our readers have read Saints and been taken by it, then you're going to just find even more stories over in global histories. And you can read about them from your country or from other places. It's just such a great resource. Now, with that in mind, we find in this particular chapter, we are jumping all over the place between continents. And I thought we could start by talking a little bit about Helmut Hübner and Karlheinz Schnieber, these two young German Latter-day Saint boys. And I can only imagine what it was like to be in Germany during the Second World War and some of the things that they were having to kind of go through, seeing their country change and, I don't know, it'd be rather a scary place. But could you tell us a little bit about how Latter-day Saints responded to the rise of the National Socialists, the Nazis? What do we know about members who either supported or opposed them? The Latter-day Saints in Germany were like Latter-day Saints anywhere else today, then, anytime. We meet the whole spectrum of political identities and, and ideologies. So Latter-day Saints in Germany were all along the spectrum of those who were supporters of Nazism, members of the party. Some of them occasionally would wear their Nazi uniforms to church meetings and things like that. There were others who were opposed, like Helmut Hübner, which we'll talk about here in a minute, who were absolutely opposed to the ideology of Nazism. And there were others who were just neutral. People who didn't let it affect their everyday life, didn't think that much about politics and saw this just as one more political thing that was happening around them. That's where the vast majority of German saints in this period fell. They were largely neutral to what was going on. There were others, though, that had taken one side or the other. Something I could add to that. Hubner is well known for his leaflet pamphleteering against Nazism. So he clearly was against it. His stepfather, though, Hugo Hubner, is a member of the SS. And so that's going on just within his own family dynamics. His branch president, Arthur Zander, is a strong supporter of Nazism. He locks the meeting house door at one point and makes everybody sit and listen to a Nazi party broadcast. He hangs a sign on the door in 1938 that says that Jews are not allowed, which is problematic because they recently had a Jewish convert who was baptized. And so that's a problem. And at the same time, the district president, Otto Berndt, is against it. He's preached over the pulpit at times against Nazi ideologies. And when members of the church stop allowing Jewish members, Jewish converts to come to meetings, Otto goes and actually takes them to meetings with him. He goes and finds them. He walks to church with them. So Hubner, this 16, 17-year-old kid, is experiencing the entire spectrum of political ideology and identity in Nazi Germany in the early 1940s. And he's kind of responding to that. He's finding his way. I mean, that's a, a moment where a lot of people are starting to kind of understand politics and to come into their own politically and ideologically. And he does that. You, you kind of see that transformation in Hubner. 
Well, Ryan, as I was reading this story about Helmut Hubner, I just couldn't believe that he's only 16. I just had to keep going back there in my mind, like he is such a young kid having to live through this and doing the things that he did. And we just want to hear from your perspective. What about the story of Helmut Hubner and his friends really stands out to you and has impressed you? Oh, man, there are just so many things that I could talk about that were impressive about Helmut Hubner. Like you said, he's 16 years old. So what Hubner does is, and this is in the chapter, so spoiler alert for readers who haven't gotten to chapter 27. And for those of you who have read it, this is more information here. So he finds a radio at his grandparents' home. The radio belongs to his brother, who is actually a member of the Nazi army. He's stationed in France at the time that he acquires this shortwave radio. He's hidden it in a closet that's locked when he goes off to his next deployment. And it looks like Helmut actually broke into the closet, stole his brother's radio. It was broken when he first found it. So he somehow arranged for it to be fixed, which was in and of itself, that was something to do because it was illegal to have a shortwave radio. And going and getting it fixed would have been difficult. But he gets it fixed and he starts listening to German language broadcasts of the BBC. Now, he spoke English, but the BBC out of England is broadcasting in German so that people in Germany can hear Allied broadcasts. He starts transcribing these, which is amazing. He took shorthand notes of the things that he was learning from the radio broadcasts from the BBC, and then he started compiling his own leaflets from this. That in and of itself, a 16-year-old kid who sees a totalitarian regime around him or has become aware that there's this totalitarian government in place and says, well, I'm just going to protest that by revealing the things that they're doing that are wrong. And it's interesting if you read the indictments that eventually the Gestapo and then the People's Court in Germany, which is a court that was set up by the Nazis specifically to address political crimes like the one that Hubner committed, in their documents, they are just taken aback and shocked by the complexity of the things that he's doing, by the detail of it, and sometimes the sophistication of it. But none of Hubner's friends were shocked by that. Rudy Voba, one of his friends, says that he was one of those kids who just knew all the answers in the church meetings. Karl-Heinz Schneeba says everyone called him the professor because he was just so smart. And we have a documentary that was released a few years ago called Truth and Conviction about this event. And in that documentary, Rudy even says that he occasionally had to be like, Helmut, stop doing that. The church leaders don't need you to confront them. <laughs> Let's be nice. And so Humner had this kind of confrontational streak in him. But there's also just this intelligence in the stuff that he's doing. He wrote a political essay as his senior paper when he graduated from school. And in that essay, he defends the Third Reich. And so much so that he's able to get a job as an apprentice in a civil service, which gives him access to banned books, which then allows him to read more deeply in political theory. And as he's doing that, he starts to see some of the things that are going on that are wrong with the Nazi regime. And he starts telling his friends, well, I don't believe this, but he's really coy. And Rudy even calls it his smoke screen, that he's just put up this smoke screen. So everybody thinks that he is a supporter of the Nazis. He's a member of the Jungfolk. He's a member of the Hitler Youth. And the Hitler Youth even at one point asked for clemency after he's sentenced to death. And there's just so much sophistication in the way that he's made it look like he's a supporter. But at the same time, he's running a ring of people who are distributing anti-government propaganda <laughs> flyers that are, are telling you what they're doing is not true. And here's the information. And 
they call it inflammatory language in the indictment. He uses this inflammatory language to insult the Fuhrer and to go after Goering. And he takes apart the whole apparatus of Nazism. And he does just these incredibly intelligent and astute things. He's one of those people who I think if he had lived past 17, he would have been just an incredible force for good and just a very intelligent young man. Well, Ryan, I share your views on Helmut. I think he's a pretty exceptional character. And I hope that the youth of today, 16 and 17-year-olds, can look at him and think, he was able to do good. He was able to apply himself to try and bring about change. And thankfully, I think there are probably, and hopefully not many members who live under a totalitarian state, but we have that freedom through the efforts of people like Helmut. But there is a little bit of an elephant in the room. Here we have Helmut as a 16-year-old boy who's also serving as a branch clerk, which for some of our readers might find rather odd because they think of maybe a branch clerk as being a, an older person. So could you tell us a little bit about the pressures that the church was experiencing during the war and why someone like Helmut might be serving as a branch clerk? As you said, he's serving as the branch clerk. And it's one of those things that we look back on today and we think, okay, that's a little weird. Who would call a 16-year-old as their branch clerk? So there's two things that are going on here. One is that there's a lot of Latter-day Saints, particularly men, who are enlisted in military service, regardless of where they're from. If their country is at war, generally young men of the, the age that we would typically call as a clerk are going to be enlisted in military service. And so those positions have to go to younger and younger members of the branch. The other thing is that outside of the United States, and particularly in this period, you call who you have. And when you have a small branch family, that's what you do. And I think that's still probably the case, that if you have a capable young man who could do all of the things that are required of a clerk, then why not call him as a clerk? And so you have this very capable young man, someone who is graduated from primary school. He's working in his apprenticeship. He's kind of at that stage of transition into adulthood in German society. And so calling him into a position in the church that is kind of commensurate with that makes a lot of sense. And so it's something that we kind of pause at, but at the time they wouldn't have thought twice about him being exactly the person who you call as a clerk. I think you're right. And we see this in the First World War. We see this in other moments of exception where some of the traditional practices, perhaps, or the tendency to maybe have an older person serve in that capacity has to change. We have to adapt. And this is a really good example of that. Coming back to Helmut and his friends, let's listen to this extract from the book that takes place on a fateful Sunday. The meeting went on as usual until branch president Arthur Zander, a member of the Nazi party, asked the congregation to remain in their seats after the closing prayer. A member of our branch, Helmut Hübner, has been arrested by the Gestapo, President Zander said. My information is very sketchy, but I know that it is political. That is all. Karl Heinz locked eyes with Rudy. The saints seated near them were whispering in astonishment. Whether they agreed with Hitler or not, many of them believed it was their duty to respect the government and its laws, and they knew any open opposition to the Nazis from a branch member, however heroic or well-intentioned, could put them all in danger. 
So we read in the book about this idea of collective risk, not wanting to be in open opposition at the risk of putting the other members in danger, these other members of the church that were in on it with Helmet. And this is a very valid concern. We have this really terrifying ordeal where two Gestapo agents take Carl Heinz away. And Ryan, we just want to know from you if you could give us a brief description of who were the Gestapo and then also what was going through your mind as you were reading these scenes. So, yeah, the Gestapo, I think, are fairly well known from most of us have seen movies or read books about Germany during World War II. But just to give a quick overview, in 1933, the Nazis created an additional police force, the Geheimde Stadtpolizei, which is what Gestapo is short for. And that became the main means for finding those people who were political dissidents, who were enemies of the state as they labeled them. And they became notorious for arresting and interrogating, very forcefully interrogating those people who were considered political enemies of the Third Reich. And that's the group that Helmut and Karl Heinz Schniebe and Rudi Volba and another friend of theirs, Gerhard Duer, fall in with because of the things that they're doing. So they've been distributing these pamphlets that Hubner has been writing. And they've been tacking them to boards or dropping them in staircases or putting them in people's mailboxes or just doing whatever they can to secretly distribute as many of these pamphlets as they can. According to the indictments, he writes as many as 60 of these pamphlets, and they range from half-page small sheets that were basically rallying cries, Hitler's lying to you, let everyone know, that kind of thing, to full-page indictments of things that were happening where he was saying, here's what we're being told by the government, and here's what I'm learning from these broadcasts, or here's this speech from this member of the Nazi party, and here's why what they said is not accurate. And so there's some that are very critical in that way. And so on this moment, the Sunday morning in 1942, after they've been doing this for almost a year, they come to the meeting house and they find out that Helmut has been arrested. And later that afternoon, Karl Heinz Schniebe is also arrested by the Gestapo and he's interrogated. Now, they had made a pact that if any of them ever got stopped by the Gestapo, that they would not turn one another in, that they would just take full credit for what happened and they wouldn't inform on one another. That does not last very long once the brutal interrogation tactics begin. So they're all beaten. And in the process of those beatings, they're asked repeatedly who else was involved. And eventually they all admit the entire scheme. And so we actually have fairly detailed reporting from the Gestapo agents about what they all have admitted to, including illegally listening to these radio broadcasts, um, illegally distributing literature that is detrimental to the state, is how it's put. And that ends up in them eventually being taken before this court and tried and sentenced. The term Gestapo, it kind of sends shivers down my back, kind of thinking you know, of these really scary, intimidating, and this would have been a terrifying experience for them. And our listeners and our readers are going to have to tune into our next episode to hear a bit more about Helmut. But if we take a step back a minute, Ryan, and you're a historian, you've been trained in various schools of historical thought. If we look at each of these stories, there is a collapse in the person's world. We have Kei Ikigami, who is suddenly finding themselves in this war zone. We've got Helmut and his friends finding their lives dramatically taking a turn. We have other people like Helga Meyer, who gets married, and then just such a short time later, her husband is killed. 
And it goes on, President Clark, a conference, it's not the same. It's all changed. It's all disrupted. So there are all of these challenges taking place. The members are being turned against one another. There's all of these conflicts. People's worlds are coming apart. What is it that helps the saints persevere during this conflict? That's such a, an important question. I think whenever we are confronted with these types of difficult life experiences, whether that's political disagreement or whether that's our own personal tragedies that are occurring. And so perseverance is obviously a, a really important part of that. And I think the thing that is important in all of these stories Something that is happening in every case is exactly what President Clark says at the end, this idea that God will work it out in his own due time, that he's at the helm and having that faith to know that God is there, that he is going to help us through these things. There are other things that are going on in Amy Brown Lyman's life in 1942 that are really, really difficult. Some things that later are going to be tragic for her including the excommunication and divorce of her husband, who is an apostle, for some just really horrible things that had to have inflicted some pain on her. But she said, and it's in the chapter, even though the shadows of war hang heavy over many lands, this 100th birthday of the Relief Society won't be forgotten because God doesn't forget these types of things that are important to us. It made me think of something that Helmut Hubner wrote. The only letter we have from the last day of his life he wrote three letters on the day that he was executed. And I'm sorry if I'm skipping ahead a bit here. I'm jumping the shark on you. But on the day that he was executed in October of 1942, he wrote three letters, one to his mother, one to his grandmother, and one to some friends of his, the Sommerfelds. We only have the Sommerfeld letter. The other two were destroyed in the Allied bombings of Hamburg. At least that's where we think they went. But on his last day, he says, when you receive this letter, I will be dead. But before my execution, I have been granted one wish to write three letters to my loved ones. I want to thank you for the letter you sent me, which they withheld from me. I also want to thank you for the many happy hours I was able to spend in the circle of your family. Please remember me kindly. I'm thankful to my Heavenly Father that this agonizing life is coming to an end this evening. I could not stand it any longer. My Father in Heaven knows that I have done nothing wrong. I'm only sorry that in my last hour, I will have to break the word of wisdom. They were going to give him some brandy to dull the pain of the guillotine. I know that God lives and he will be the proper judge of this matter. Until our happy reunion in a better world, I remain your friend and brother in the gospel, Helmut. And so even at that last moment, his greatest regret was that there was a commandment that would be broken. And yet it was also, I know God will be my proper judge. And I think that that's something that you see in all of these stories. I think Keikigami gives you that same kind of sense of God is there. God will be present. And you get that from Sister Lyme and you get that from Helmut Hubner. You get that even, I think, from Sister Meyer and the death of her husband, Gerhardt, in the war. They have this constant trust in God. This chapter, as I was reading it, it was just so, I just felt so emotional. It's so heavy. There's a lot of heartbreak. And I'm glad you brought up the story of Amy Brown Lyman and just giving a little bit more context that she had more going on in her life than 
her calling as a Relief Society general president and everything going on with the war. But she ended the broadcast and the message to the sisters as far as she could send it. Let us this day rededicate ourselves to our own special work and mission into the advancement of the gospel of our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. And I found a lot of hope in that message that regardless of what we're going through, we can still have some control over the hope that we have as we rededicate ourselves wherever we are. So I hope that readers feel that too, that in the midst of all this heaviness, they were feeling hopeful. They did have a lot to to look forward to, and especially with their relationship to Jesus Christ. So Ryan, we're going to take advantage here of your skills and expertise in global church history. Here in this particular chapter, we've got members of the Church of Japanese Heritage living in Hawaii. We've got several German Latter-day Saints. How does a historian approach the task of writing a history book about someone from a different culture than their own? What kind of sensitivities do they have to have in mind when taking on such a task? I think that's like the million dollar question of global history, right? Is how do we put down our own biases, our own lens that we come to everything with and try to put ourselves in the shoes of another person or another culture? And that has been probably the greatest challenge that we've had in both saints and then in global histories as we've tried as much as possible to engross ourselves. And I think the short answer is lots and lots of background reading. We're reading histories that are unrelated to the church. You hear that there was a civil war here or a coup occurred at this point, or that there's this long history of naming conventions of particular cities. That's a history that is part of the people and part of their experience and part of the way that they view the world that you have to understand. So when we're working in places like Poland or this chapter mentions saints who are from Tilsit, which is now part of Russia, and there's a history there, right, that at this moment in the 1940s, Tilsit is part of Germany. But by the contemporary time, when people will be reading this chapter, it's now part of Russia. And so what happened there? And how did it get to that point? And doing all of that kind of background reading, kind of understanding those things. And then once we've built our own knowledge base, it's time to test that. And the best way to test that is by talking to people who are from those places. So those interviews that we do aren't just about tell me your story. If we started with just tell me your story, there are going to be things that we miss. But if it's help me to understand this better. And having that humility to say, I don't know everything that's going on here. Please help me, teach me, and asking them to help you to understand what it is to be a Latter-day Saint in that place and how the gospel has been meaningful to them and those types of things. And also just kind of recognizing that occasionally we're just not going to know. Well, in this book, I really appreciated hearing this significant world history happening through different members of the church in different areas of the world. And Ryan, with your experience with writing global histories, why is it so effective to tell church history from this global perspective? I think that the reason why it's most effective to focus on global perspectives is because the gospel of Jesus Christ asks us, begs us to understand one another and to open our hearts and minds to each other. It asks us to overcome anything that might separate ourselves from one another and 
to take that out of our lives and to become unified. And the only way that we can become unified with one another is by coming in contact with each other, by hearing each other's stories, by understanding each other, and by putting in kind of the work of building a community of faith, of becoming individual saints who also are concerned with the global community of saints, with all of God's children. And we're taught that all the time, right? Primary songs, I am a child of God. And Nephi tells us all are alike unto God. And if we're not listening to that, if we're not taking that into our hearts and listening to one another and bringing each other into our hearts, then we're missing a key part of the restored gospel. In particular, the restored gospel, that's something that the temple teaches us. That's something that Joseph Smith taught us. And that's something that through contemporary prophets and apostles, we are learning better how Christ loves and being able to reflect him and to bear his image to the world by understanding what all of the expressions of God's love are and how they meet people where they are. Thank you for sharing that perspective. And I might be biased here, but I love how in the church, even from its founding, we have been encouraged to have a history and to record everything. And so my non-Latter-day Saint friends who are historians can't quite wrap their head around why our church has been so keen to document and record its history. And I think you're right, Ryan. I think there's a real power in knowing who we are as individuals, but also as a people, and also being able to recognize the hand of the Lord. And if we don't document that, then it gets lost, it gets forgotten. And those little grains of spiritual experiences, which could do infinite good in the future, are lost. Well, and I think that there's power in a story like Helmut Hubner, right? How many 16, 17-year-olds today are in situations where they want to speak up? where they see things that are happening around them that they disagree with, where there's injustice, where there's intolerance happening, where bad things could happen if someone doesn't speak up. And by listening to a story like this and seeing that there's strength and courage, that there's a place for being bold and declaring these things. And maybe that doesn't mean that you have to surreptitiously distribute pamphlets and eventually be arrested by Gestapo agents and beaten until you confess, right? I mean, that doesn't have to happen. But there are times when standing up for what's right, standing up for good things, standing up for the truth is courageous. And it's something that we should be doing. And he, he could be a good example of that. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been wonderful having you and to learn from some of your points of view and some of your experiences. So thanks again. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of saints and you can email saints podcast at churchofjesuschrist.org it would be great to hear from you